Good morning, everyone. Glad you're here today. Let's pray and uh, get to work on our text this morning. Father, we are uh, in front of a text this morning that is so important. It's um, one that we live in every single day of our lives as believers. And so I pray that you'd help our understanding of this text to be very practical and very personal because we need uh, this passage in our lives. We all struggle with uh, various forms of sin, and it is the hope in Christ that can move us from a position of ungodliness to godliness, from immaturity to maturity. So I pray that you would help us to take another step in that direction today. And then as we receive communion at the end, Lord, you just seal the things we're talking about in this passage as we partake of these elements. So help us now, Lord, to hear from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our theme for the month of August is the mortification of sin. It's kind of an old school term, but it it comes from Colossians 3 and Romans chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul says that we are to put to death the deeds of the body, where he says that we are to put to death what is earthly in us. The King James translation translates this little phrase, put to death, as mortify. And that's where we get this idea of mortification. And while this, the concept may be a bit old or maybe unfamiliar, I, I'm sure that you are aware of the power of sin in your life. I'm, I'm sure that you are aware of this very basic and common challenge that every single one of us faces, and it's this. How do we stop doing the things that we know we shouldn't do? I mean, could there be anything more basic than that? How do we stop doing the things we know? Look, I shouldn't be doing this, but I still do it. How do we stop doing that? To to attach it to our mission statement as a church, which is igniting a passion to follow Jesus, mortification of sin relates to this in that if you're going to ignite a passion to follow Jesus, you also have to extinguish a passion to follow sin. You can't have one without the other. You have to have both. You have to have a growing passion to follow Jesus and a, a growing desire to see sin control you less and less. John Owen, in his classic book in the 1600s on the mortification of sin, says, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Well, what does sin kill? Well, ki- sin kills your passion for Jesus. So we think, as a pastoral staff and as elders, that this is such an important subject that we want to take the entire month of August and talk about this. We have this thing we're called Live 12. We have these these videos that we're running in the context of small groups. We have family devotional guides, scripture memory, a resource area with all sorts of extra reading that you could do. And, And then afterwards, we're all done with this, we're going to have some counseling training to help you know how to help other people. In other words, if you learn how to be free of sin, not permanently and 100%, but you learn how to battle sin, we want you to be able to help other people to learn how to be able to battle sin. Because after all, I mean, isn't that what church should be? It should be a place where people who have found freedom lead other people to find freedom. I mean, that is church in its finest hour. You know what lame church is? Lame church is when people act as though they know how to be free, but they never really are. I mean, that's, that's a church nobody wants to be a part of. And, and so what our desire is, is to try and help all of us to understand the meaning of maturity in Christ, what it means to, to grow in our understanding, to become more and more like Him. And so mortification of sin is a part of that. Growing in likeness of Christ on the one hand, mortifying the things that hold us back from a passion of, to follow Jesus on the other side of the equation. Now, last week we looked at the um, issues that relate to the context of this battle. We looked at three fairly significant theological words, words like justification, glorification, and sanctification. Let me just review what we talked about last week. Justification is the beginning of one's relationship with God. It is when a person receives Christ as their Savior, they repent of their sins, they ask God to take what Jesus did and apply it to their sin account, and then God declares over that person a legal standing of righteousness, a legal standing of forgiveness, even though you and God and everyone around you knows you're not actually righteous. This is why grace is so amazing. It is that God declares over you something you're not, and He does it all in Christ. 
Which is why the only answer when you die and stand before God and he says, why should I let you into heaven? The only answer is, is because I've received your son as my savior for the forgiveness of my sins. That is the beginning of a relationship with God. It's a beginning of a relationship with Jesus. It's called justification. Where this is going is glorification, meaning when life ends, when Jesus returns in the second coming, when the devil and all those who followed him are finally dealt with and cast in the lake of fire, when the earth is recreated, and when there is given to those who follow Jesus resurrected bodies, the effect of that will be every aspect of sinfulness in us will be absolutely, completely, 100% eradicated. And that is called glorification. It is when God completes his redemptive event and brings everything back to the way it was in the Garden of Eden. So in between justification and glorification is sanctification. And that's where we are now. And what is sanctification? Well, sanctification is the present and progressive work, meaning it goes up and down, progressive work of God and man. God and man cooperate in this exchange where sin's control is lessened and a person grows more and more like Jesus in specific and practical ways. And so it's, it's, it's not overly complicated. It's challenging, but it's not overly complicated. It simply means that the more I grow in Christ-likeness, the more I grow in my maturity, the less sin has control over me, finding greater and greater elements of freedom. So mortification of sin is directly linked to this progressive sanctification in that It is the means by which sin controls us less and less, and thereby allowing for Christ to control us more and more. As we said last week, putting sin to death is more like atrophy than it is amputation. By atrophy, I mean you you, you don't cut the arm off like in an amputation. It still is there, but by atrophy with disuse, with weakening its resources, the arm grows less and less strong. And the effect of it is it loses its power. And so the mortification of sin doesn't mean that you permanently cut off all presence of sin. You you won't be able to do that. And as we'll see this morning, it's very clear in Romans 7. Instead, what it means is that as a follower of Jesus, sin doesn't have control over you and you stop exercising sin's power. So it's like atrophy, not amputation. So last week I summarized what we're going to talk about with this simple statement. The battle is within, and daily I must fight. Death comes from sin, killed only by Christ's might. Mortification of sin is the way in which sin has less and less control, and Christ has more and more control. Now, in Romans chapter 7... What we're essentially talking about here is what does it mean for the believer to wrestle with sin? In other words, first, sin, even after conversion, is the problem. What Paul is talking about here is a dissection of his honest struggle with sin. This passage is a fairly famous one. And part of the reason why it's so famous is because it's so relevant to every single follower of Jesus and where we live. It, it sort of serves like an x-ray, if you will, as to what is happening underneath the surface or inside of the soul of a believer when he or she is struggling or wrestling with sin. Romans 7 dissects this internal battle. Now you need to know that some people, when they look at Romans 7, don't necessarily think that Paul is talking about a believer's struggle. Rather, they look at this text and they see that it's about an unbeliever's struggle. And that's a, that's a pretty important distinction, because if it really is about an unbeliever's struggle, then why in the world would we be talking about it on a Sunday morning like this in regards to the mortification of sin? On the other hand, if it really is about a believer's struggle, then there's a lot of things in here that are incredibly helpful. At the appendix of Brian Hedge's book, this book that we recommended that you read, he has a great little summary as to why he thinks, and I agree, that this text is talking about Paul's struggle with sin after conversion. In other words, how does a believer deal with their sin? What's, what's going on in their soul? And there's, there's five reasons that he puts down in terms of why this is likely the case. Let me just give them to you. In the first case, he says that Paul writes in the present tense. In other words, when he's writing Romans, he's talking about the struggle with sin as if it is very much operational in his life. And so he it's as though it's a, a present living reality. Secondly, he approved or he expresses his approval of and the delight in God's law. 
So he, he's loving God's law and expresses his love for, for God's word. Third, he expresses antagonism against sin. He absolutely hates his sin. And prior to coming to Christ, Paul didn't really understand all of what his true sinfulness was all about. Fourth, he expresses Christian hope, meaning that longing for the day when Jesus will complete this work, putting his faith, putting his trust in Christ, something he would not have expressed if this were written about his life pre-conversion. And fifth, it harmonizes with Paul's theology elsewhere, like in the book of Galatians, as we'll see in other parts during our message today. Paul expresses this idea of a believer wrestling with sin. So this point, sin after conversion is the problem, is really important. It's, It's something for us to really think about for a couple reasons. First, it's important because to be a Christian and to be human is to understand and to live with this battle. I mean, just there couldn't be anything more practical than this, that there are things that you know are wrong, and even though you know they're wrong, and even though you know what is right and what you should do, it's still a temptation to do the wrong thing, isn't it? So the question is, where in the world does that come from? Why is that there? And unfortunately, sometimes we act on those temptations even though we know they are not right. And a believer in Jesus fights this battle every single day of their life. And you, you, you'll fight this battle all day long today. You'll fight it the next day and the next day and the next day. It's just a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I mean, so last night, it's 1045. I am tired. I am ready to go to bed. I've been reviewing my sermon on sin, and my printer won't print, right? And, and it, just, it won't print, so I, I, I'm patient, right, for 10 minutes, I've just spent all of my patience I can spend. I've gone beyond the level of, of, I'm into exceptional godliness at this moment, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm into that category, and I just, I, 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 you know, do what you do when you can't figure it out. I just, I shook it, you know. I was like, come on, you know, and uh, not that hard, but you know. So, and and then it clicked and it worked, and I was like, oh, all right. So that, you know, I did a little Fonzarelli thing, you know, and it uh, hit it, and it. It's 10:45. I'm working on a sermon on sin. And I'm getting angry at a printer, right? So, I mean, it's, 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 just, it's right there, right? It's, it's always right there. So you could have the most godly, most spiritual thoughts. You have a conversation out in the atrium area as you're leaving, and it's like God's presence just comes down. And it's like, man, you're in the Shekinah glory moment. You get in the car, and you could say things straight out of the pit of hell to your spouse. You could. And you've done it, right? You, you, you have great thoughts about all the wonderful things that you've done for the sake of God and His kingdom, and then you feel proud about it. And boom. So this is the real world in which we live. We, we have a life that we live that is constantly on the razor-thin edge of good things and bad things. The second reason why this is important It's because by understanding what's going on in the inside of our soul, it helps us to fight more effectively. It helps us to understand, by doing a dissection of the soul, what's really going on. And it helps us to avoid some extremes. On the one hand is the extreme of perfectionism, where you think that real Christians just don't sin. Or you think, man, as a result of that, you start to look down on other people because of how sinful they are. Or, maybe even worse you begin to get seriously depressed about the state of your own soul because you, you, you can't be perfect. And so you, you fall into a sin, sinfulless, perfectionistic sort of mentality. On the other hand, which I see way too much of, is a passivist sort of response. So you got perfectionism on one hand, you have passivism on the other, where the person just throws up their hands and like, well, I, I can't beat this thing. This is, I guess this is just who I am. I'm, I'm just... A person who sins. And so they just throw up their hands and they give up. They stop fighting altogether and fall into this hopeless scenario of just convincing themselves that this is who I am. I can't do anything else. I just, the sin is my identity. And you talk about a hopeless scenario. It's terrible. Third, there is a natural tendency. Again, why is this important to talk about this dissection of the soul? There's a natural tendency in our search for understanding as to why we sin. So why do I wrestle with this? Why do I, why do I sin this way? There's a natural tendency to blame things around us. I mean, this, this started in the garden. God showed up and said, why are you hiding? Because I, I was naked. Who told you you were naked? Ooh. 
And then Adam says, the woman who you gave me, right? And so there it began. The woman who you gave me. From the very beginning, we have been relentless finger pointing. Finger pointers. It's my mom. It's my dad. It's my upbringing. It's my culture. It's this world. It's, it's the loss of these values. It's my boss. It's my environment. It's my kids. I mean, all these things. The reality is, certainly all of those scenarios are relevant to our sinful actions, but, but they're not the ultimate problem. They're not the cause of the struggle. Sometimes I find people who just think, if I just get rid of all these rules, the problem are all these rules in my life, the church, the Bible, pastors, all these rules, I just get rid of rules, then I would be truly happy. In fact, that's what Paul is addressing in Romans 7. There are some people who are saying, you know what the problem is, Paul, is the why I sin all the time. The problem is the law. I mean, the law just makes me sin. And so the law is bad, Paul. The law is bad. And Paul's addressing this in Romans 7. Look at Romans 7 and verse 7. A little bit earlier than the text we'll look at today, but it helps to get our bearings. He says, what shall we say? Is the law sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. Here he gets to it. Did the law make this situation happen? No way, he says. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, that being the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. What is Paul saying? He's saying the law is not the problem. The rules aren't the issue. What he's saying is sin is the problem. You see, what what Paul is driving at is something that's really important, and this is something we just need to get into our mindsets, our hearts, something to get into the framework of who we are, is that the biggest problem in our life is our own individual sin. Can I just tell you, friend, that you'll get free so much faster. There's a lot of hope that can come when you stop blaming everybody else around you and start to realize, you know what, the one thing that I really need to address, the one thing that's actually within my realm to control, the one thing I need to be focusing on is what is my sin issue. The problem is, is that sometimes we think, no, it's about them and them and them. Well, they got to change first and they got to do this. And if we can just get rid of all these, these rules, then, then, then that could be not so guilty and wouldn't have all this constriction and feel all this pressure to perform. Reminds me of a young man that um, I counseled as an admissions counselor before um, I was in the pastoral ministry when I was in seminary. I was a admissions counselor for an undergraduate program while in seminary. And, you know, you run into a lot of really interesting um, teenagers and kids and things of that sort, and parents for that matter too, a lot of interesting parents. I remember one mom who said, look, we're going to spend, back then it was like $17,000 a year, we're going to spend $17,000 a year for four years to send our daughter to the school. Is she going to come out godly? And I said, we'll try. You've had her for 18 years. We'll do our best. You know, That's a true story. And, uh, she enrolled, surprisingly enough, so it worked out. But there's a young man that I uh, was talking about the school with and give him a campus tour and as a part of our you know um, admissions counseling process showed him a little bit of handbook and what our expectations were in terms of how students were to live and conduct themselves on a Christian college campus and man when he saw those rules he's like ah man I'm not, I, I can't I'm not doing that I, don't, I can't do those rules I'm, I'm, I don't like rules like that I'm like all right that's fine because I I don't want to live like that I don't want, I don't want rules like, all right what are you gonna do he's like yeah I'm gonna join the military I was like, good luck with that. 
So why is that funny? Well, because we know life is, is full of rules. It's ridiculous to think that if I just get rid of rules, that I would be different. We know the fact that that really isn't the case. And yet there is a little part of us that thinks that way. If I could just change the dynamics, I could be free. And what Paul is saying is, look, the problem is not with the law. The problem isn't the law. The problem isn't the scriptures. The problem, the real problem, is sin. The law only shines a spotlight on sin. So what Paul is saying here first is that believers in Jesus, the problem, even after conversion, is sin. That's what the problem is. Secondly, now specifically into our text this morning, that sin, even after conversion, remains within. So if sin is the problem, then Paul next addresses, so so where does this issue actually reside He's saying, in effect here, that the law doesn't create sin, it just highlights it. And what he's also saying is that the cross of Jesus Christ, it saves us from the power and the penalty of sin, but it doesn't remove the presence of sin. And you need to make a distinction between those. There is a real and ongoing battle with sin, even in the heart and life of a believer in Jesus Christ. Now that battle is incredibly different than somebody who's never given their heart and life to Christ. But there is still a real and significant battle. And so Paul in verse 14 highlights this. He says, first and foremost, notice here first, that Christians are fundamentally, we're we're sinful. Verse 14, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. So what Paul does is he establishes that there's kind of two realms there's, there's this spiritual realm and there's this fleshly, sinful, earthly passions realm. He identifies here that there's this contrast between these two realms, between what is spiritual and that which is unspiritual. And he describes himself as being of the flesh. Now what does that mean? Well at first you might think he's talking about, I'm physical. Well, that, that's true, but that's not all of what he means when he says the flesh. By the flesh, he means the, the flesh principle. It means the remaining aspect of the fall, the, the remaining elements within every Christian that even still objects to God and seeks to be independent of Him. It is this flesh principle that is more than just the body. It is this sort of anti-God, self-sufficient, I'm going to do things my way. And even after you come to faith in Christ, that still is a part of the fabric of whom and what you are. By the way, that is the thing that in glorification, Jesus is going to completely eradicate. But until now, there is a, a battle, a wrestling, a war that takes place. Other translations will render this phrase of of the flesh as sin nature. And you'll see next week why I don't necessarily like that definition. It implies that it's equal, like you've got a good nature and a bad nature and as though they're absolutely equal. Well, they're not equal, and we'll talk about that next week. But I do want you to understand that there is something still remaining that is inherently sinful. There's an element of earthliness, an element of remnants of the fall that are within us. In fact, he says that not only is he of the flesh, but he's also sold under sin. Now again, next week we'll see from Romans 6 that he's now a a servant of a new master, a servant of a new Lord. But he still uses this phrase. Why? Because he's not talking about personal bondage as much as he is talking about the environment in which he lives that he lives in a broken, fallen world, that this, this, this creative environment that we are in is under the weight and the oppression of sin. And so to be fleshly, to be earthly, to be of the flesh, means that there are fundamental things within us that are still not fully redeemed. So you're redeemed, but being redeemed. Or as Paul puts it in Galatians 5.17, he says this, "...the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit." And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. And these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That's Galatians 5.17. So Paul is saying there, look, there is this, this, this tension that exists between the realm of the Spirit and the realm of the flesh. And that is why you do things you don't want to do. Because fundamentally, even after conversion, Christians are still sinful. Secondly, In verse 15 we see that there is a real struggle with this. I mean, listen to what he says. 
for I do not understand my own actions. I mean, don't you love that the Bible says that? Because you've probably looked at your own life and you're like, why in the world do I do this? I know this is wrong. I know the consequences. I've done this before and it's, it's not paid off well. And yet here I go, I go on back to it again. I mean, it's crazy. Why do I do this? I don't understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. It's almost like he's Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Why do I, why do I do this? He's left scratching his head when it comes to this internal battle. Why, why do I keep going back to this? What is going on inside of me? And he asks this question because he feels what you feel. He feels the war within. And he sees the contrast between with what he wants to do and what he actually does. What we have here is we have the Apostle Paul acknowledging that dealing with sin is a real battle. A real battle. And one in which there is perpetual conflict and perpetual tension. So it's really a battle. That means that and at one level, this statement is incredibly helpful because it shows us what the normal Christian experience is. And you know what the normal Christian experience is? It's not that you live an absolutely sinless, perfect life, always singing kumbaya and giving all your money away and never have any conflict with anybody and a perfect marriage and kids that grow up and then take care of you for the rest of your life. That's not the vision of the Christian life. You know what the Christian life is? It is a daily war with sin that you can't stand and you wonder why in the world I'm even attracted to this junk. And you fight and fight and fight and you go to bed exhausted. You wake up the next morning, you fight and fight and fight. You do that for six days, you come back, you go to church, you get inspired, you get motivated, you go back out and you fight for six more days, you come back and do it again and do it again and do it again. And you repeat that for 95 years and then you take it home and God says, well done, good and faithful servant. That is the Christian life. It is a continual, progressive, aggressive fight where you don't give up. So it's really helpful that we set our expectations. What should my life be like if I'm a follower of Jesus? Answer, it should be hard. You should be fighting. You should be struggling. You should be wrestling. And you should never give up. It's encouraging because it reminds us that the goal is not perfection. The goal is to continually fight. In fact, it is a good sign when you are fighting. It's a bad sign when you give up. Failure isn't fighting. Failure is when you stop fighting. You ought to be scared not when you're fighting. You ought to be scared when you're just like, whatever. That ought to scare you out of your mind. What's really scary is when someone doesn't even know they should fight. The fact that you're struggling, the fact that you're wrestling with it is hopeful. So keep fighting. That's the point what Paul says here. Third, he tells us in verses 16 to 20 that the heart is a war zone. That indwelling sin creates a heart-based war zone. He talks about indwelling sin. Look at verse 16. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, here it comes, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. What is he saying here? He's saying that there is a battle due to the remnants of the fall within us. He talks about indwelling sin almost as though it's a foreign power. as Almost as if he feels like there's a completely different person who's sinning than the person who I really want to be. And if you are a committed follower of Jesus, you know exactly what that's like. Because... You hear great and wonderful truths expressed through the word in your reading or through preaching or through singing. And you're like, yes, that's what I want. And then just a few moments later, you can have the most awful, God-forsaken thought or action. And you just look at yourself and go, what in the world? And what is that? It is indwelling sin. Now, describing this is a bit of a challenge. Like, So how does this work? Because on the the one hand, we're, we're called... New creatures in Christ. We're, we're 
the Bible calls us a new man, a new person, and yet we also have this internal battle. Maybe an analogy and, and then a, a diagram will help. So when a foreign power invades a country, and that foreign power comes in and they, they defeat the established government, and that government collapses, and the invading power takes over, in effect the war has been won, so to speak. The, the government, the power that controlled the country has been defeated and a new foreign power is there. But often it takes a long time to either rebuild that nation or to deal with all of the pockets of insurgency all around the country. I mean, Iraq would be a great example of that. You come in, new power is there, new authority, but the reality is lots of insurgencies. In the same way, when it comes to the believer's heart, that's exactly what has happened. Christ has come and has conquered the land. The battle has been won. But there are insurrections all over the place trying to still vie for control. The, the, the final battle, so to speak, has been won, but establishing practical on-the-ground control is rather complicated and rather hard. Maybe another way to look at it would be an analogy. We drew this out for you this way. You could think of your position in Christ as a new man or a new woman, meaning that, that in Christ you're, you're a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. You, you de- you're declared righteous, you've got a new relationship, a new identity, a new power that is within you, a new authority in the name of Christ, as we'll talk about next week from Romans 6. So there's a positional righteousness, a positional authority that comes with being in Christ. And yet at the same time, there is a practical struggle between good and evil that's going inside of the soul. So you can see the Bible that it says, you're in Christ, you're in Christ, you're in Christ. But the reality is sometimes you don't feel very much in Christ. It feels like you're more like in the devil, right? You feel like you're more in sin. Well, what does that mean? Well, positionally it means that God has declared over you that you're righteous. Positionally, he's declared you're forgiven. Positionally, he says, you're my son, you're my daughter. But practically, there is still an internal struggle, a battle between good and evil that's going on. And what Paul is trying to help us understand in Romans chapter 7 is that there is this indwelling sin issue, this this remnant of the fall that is still within us. There's a, a sense in which that the believer in Jesus is still a bit of a divided person. That there is a, a war zone that is happening within the heart. And the point of all this is just for you to realize that although you are in Christ, listen friend, you still have to fight. Even though you are forgiven and declared righteous, you still have, you, you are still in a battle. You are still in a fight for your life. Not for your eternal destiny, but for you to live out your eternal destiny. What Paul says is that indwelling sin creates this heart-based war zone. Fourth, verses 21 to 23, he tells us that the battle involves Actions, thoughts, and desires. We see from Paul's treatment here that the battle with sin is multi-layered. In other words, sin is so much more than just what we do. Sin, anything that we do, good or bad, but especially sin, is a combination of actions, of thoughts, and desires which play off one another. Look at verses 21 through 23, and just note how often Paul mentions things like wants, delights, desire. Verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Check that out. I want to do right, but evil's right there with me. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What's he doing here? Well, he's laying down this idea that when he wants to do right, evil is always lurking, and that there are competing laws within his soul, competing competing principles, if you will, of which path am I going to choose, which life am I going to embrace, and you, you can think of these different paths as laws or philosophies or principles or a, a manner in which you would live. And this struggle is not just with the things that we do. No, it's more significant than that. You see, when we think about how we sin, realize that it's not just the actions that are a problem, but also those actions came from somewhere. Those actions came from thoughts. 
And thank God we don't act on every thought that we've ever had. And those thoughts come from desires. And those desires then produce thoughts which then produce action. So the problem in terms of what we do is not just the behaviors that we have, but it rather relates even to things that we think about and for that matter the desires that are fundamental to who we are. You see, the fact is you can change your actions and you can even maybe change your thoughts, but at the end of the day, can you fully change your desires? See, this is where the gospel comes in and the beautiful thing that Jesus does is he actually changes what you want so you can change what you think so you can change what you do. Sin does the same thing. Sin tempts us with these remnants of these sinful wants, these, these, these desires that we know are wrong, but they're fundamentally there. That then relate to thoughts, that then relate to actions. You see, this is incredibly important because it's not too hard to just have somebody modify their behavior for a little while. You put enough pressure, put enough negative consequences. You can make anybody do just about anything for a season. But if you want true transformation, if you want ultimate life change, you have to get beyond actions and you have to get beyond thoughts. Because you could brainwash somebody. You actually have to get to desires. And when you get to the desire level, suddenly now there's a whole new path of freedom that opens up. Parents, your goal in parenting is not just to have your kids obey. It's not even just to have, to have them to have them have the right thoughts in their head. You actually have to get to the desire level. I mean, that's the really tricky part. That's why the teenagers are so hard. Because you can modify their behavior when they're young. They get older, it's a little harder. And when they're young, their thoughts are pretty simple. When they get a little older, they start to ask annoying questions like, Why? And ask your mom only works for a few years, right? you got to get to the desire level. And this is where you need the gospel and you need the spirit and you need Christ. Because when he comes, he can transform desires and give new desires. But even after Christ, there are still these remnants of misplaced desires and misplaced wants. I mean, listen to what James says in James chapter 1. He describes temptation this way. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. The devil knows what your desires are, even after Christ. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So James helps us understand what temptation is all about. He helps us to understand that temptation doesn't just target the actions. Temptations doesn't just target our thinking. Temptations actually target what we want. And you know when freedom comes? Freedom comes when you start to ask yourself this question. Why in the world do I want this? And God, could you help me to have a different kind of want? Could you restore a new want, Lord? Psalm says, unite my heart to fear your name. What's he's asking for? He's asking for, God, give me the right desires. Give me the right appetites. Give me the right yearnings. The enemy loves to target us at the level of temptation. This is what he did in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3. He comes to the the woman. The serpent says to the woman, you will not surely die. He says this, for God knows that you When you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate. Do you see how much desire is built into that temptation event? This is really important. You have to get below just the actions. You have to get below even the thoughts. We have to actually get to the desire level to see where temptations, where sin, and for that matter, where righteousness actually begins. My guess is you've, you've seen this in your own life. This, this desire piece and the fact that there are two paths in your life that are just continually there. You, you could be having a great day. Things are going really well. You got up at three o'clock in the morning, had a three hour quiet time with God, right? You, and the way to, to, to work, you, you prayed all the way there, listened to Christian radio, came in singing just as I am without one plea as you went into your office, sat down, thank God for your day. Worked really hard, and then a conflict came by 9 o'clock in the morning, and everything that you've been doing prior to that time went out the window as you became instantly sinful. There is this, when I want to do good, evil is lurking right at hand, and these desires, these wants, 
the remnants of the fall are always there. It is amazing how dangerously and quickly they can become engaged. Friends, this is a battle that we face every single day. And that's why we have to be killing sin. We have to kill it, not just at the action level, not just at the thought level. We have to kill it at the desire level. Finally, verses 24 to 25, Paul tells us, don't despair. Fight by fleeing to Christ. Now, why does he say that? Well, he says that because if you just took what we just talked about here, it's pretty overwhelming. I mean, think about what we've discussed this morning. I've tried to explain to you that every Christian wrestles with sin deeply in his or her soul. Tried to help you understand that you will never achieve absolute perfection in this lifetime. That there is a constant enemy, and that enemy is not just outside of you, it's actually inside of you, a dark part of your soul. It's always there. And the most basic part of the problem is fundamentally desire. It's what you want, and you can't change fundamentally what you want. There's no guarantee that even if you want to do the right thing, that you're actually going to do it. I mean, you're you're all that, and it's pretty depressing. It's no wonder that Paul kind of reaches this fever pitch in Romans chapter 7 and verse 24. He says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I mean, if you get this in your soul, there ought to be something in your heart that's just like, I am so sick of my stinking sin. Who's going to save me from myself? That's the question. And his answer is so incredibly hopeful. It's the essence of the gospel. It's what the church is all about. It's why this is the most wonderful thing in the world to talk about. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What do we need? We need deliverance. We need somebody to change the want. We need somebody to fix what we cannot fix on our own. And the solution, according to Paul, is for Jesus Christ to live through him. So when you look at the dark recesses of your soul, certainly it'll be alarming. But it shouldn't drive you to despair. Instead, it should drive you to embrace the life offered to you by Jesus. Where he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Or as Paul said in Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It means you don't have to throw your hands up in despair. No. You could be incredibly frustrated with your lack of sanctification. And it is frustrating. You know why? Because the more and more you grow in maturity, the more and more you realize how an awful sinner you are. So i got great news for you. The more you grow up, the bigger you, a sinner you become. Happy day, right? (laughs) Look, but if you're in Christianity because somehow it's going to make you feel better about yourself, that is not going to happen. The more you understand about God, the worse you ought to feel about yourself, and the more you love Christ. That's the beautiful paradox of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You're not in this thing so you can feel good about yourself. You're in this thing because you're an awful sinner and you need a Savior who came to die for you, who took all of your sins away, and without Him, you got nothing, zilch, nada. you got no hope without Him. And that is the confession of your life. All I have is Christ. So therefore, Paul says, flee to him. The battle is within. Daily I must fight. Death comes from sin killed only by Christ's might. So what does Paul do? He recognizes that there's a battle. And that Christ, you can help me. So he concludes in verse 25 with this. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. What's he doing? So here's where I live. I live in a war zone. It's not hopeless. But man, it's hard sometimes. But i got to continually, continually fight. So friends, listen to me. You have to understand that the battle that we're in is real, it's serious, it's difficult, it's frustrating, but you got to know something. It is not, hear me, it is not impossible. You can, God helping you, win the battle with sin. You won't win it perfectly. You won't win it 100% of the time. But you have to fight. You, you can't throw up your hands and say, well, I can't win this perfectly, so I'm not going to be in it. Come on. you you got to be in the fight to battle with sin. And even though you are in Christ, even though Jesus has given everything for you, it doesn't mean that you can simply coast and go, ah, I know where I'm going when I die. 
If you know where you're going where, where, when you die, then you will fight like heaven and hell is on the line because of the glorious grace that you have been, been the recipient of. Our battle cry, according to Colossians 1, is this. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know what the hope is? It is Christ in me, the hope of glory. So for some of you, this whole idea of fighting sin is something you need to believe again. You need to recommit yourself to this battle on the inside because you've given in. You've quit. You're discouraged, but even more so, there's no hope because you've just determined, I am my sin. Listen to me, you are not your sin. And you have to fight. And therefore, you need to ask God to restore the joy of your salvation. God, give me the fight back. There's others of you who you're fighting, and you're fighting hard, but you're tired. It feels like sin wins a lot more than not, and today what you need to be reminded of is it's Christ in you, the hope of glory, and that fighting is what it's all about. And so you you have to keep fighting, and you have to ask God to help you to renew your passion to fight this battle on the inside. And it's not that you've given up, but you need someone to come behind you and say, hey man, keep going, just keep fighting, because this is what it's all about. It is about fighting. And you need brothers and sisters around you to tell you, hey, keep fighting. You need to come to church and sing, we're going to fight and we don't give up. There's some of you who need to think about this fight, but think about it differently in a particular er- category or area of your life. You, maybe today you just you feel the impetus that I got some things I got to work on. You, have, you fight really hard over here, but there's there's like this other area that just it needs some additional energy. The flank has got to be closed. And ask God today to fill you with greater passion and greater desires to fight the wrong and to love what's right in new categories. And then finally, there's some of you who, when I talk about sin, you know what sin is, but you don't, you don't really know what forgiveness is. I mean, you know what it is theoretically, but you don't know what it's like to have a relationship with God. And for you today, the call is, is not just to fight sin, but it is to actually acknowledge for the first time in your life that the problem isn't just what you do. Listen, the problem is actually who you are. And, and you need for God to make you a new creature so you can even enter into this fight of sin. And today the call for you is not to ask God to help you fight your sin. The call is to actually say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I receive Christ as my Savior. And that's when the battle with sin really begins. Paul says, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who? (laughs) Thanks be to God. Jesus Christ does. Lord Jesus, we say to you how awesome are your works, O Lord. We are amazed at what you can do for us and in us and through us. And we humbly acknowledge today that unless it's Christ in us, there is no hope of glory. And um, Lord, we just want you to speak to us now as we enter into a time around the Lord's table. We want you to to move. We're so weary of sin and its effects, and we, we need to fight, and we pray you'd help us to fight. I pray for a legacy in this church of people who will fight sin for generations and then go home to you in glory. So, Lord, help us to see our sin as the biggest problem within. And transform us incrementally, we pray, into the growing image of Christ. Help us now as we respond and receive these elements. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to respond by receiving the Lord's table. I'm going to invite those who are serving us, if you'd come up to the front, please. And then also we have... Three additional um, spots up here where um, an elder and his wife or a pastor and his wife are going to be up here at uh, the front. And let me tell you what these spots are for up here. Um, 
We're going to distribute communion in the normal way. Ushers will come and folks will pass the plate down there in front of you and you can receive the Lord's table that way and that will be a, a great expression of your commitment to Christ. But there are others of you who I know that a better way for you to respond today would be actually to come out of your seat while everyone else is receiving it in the normal way and you come to one of our spiritual elders, a pastor or an elder, his wife, and for you just to simply say, I'm here today because, and you just fill in that blank. And want you to be quick, want you to be clear. This isn't a time for counseling. This is a time for you to come and confess. And maybe you'd come and just say, I, I'm not fighting sin. And you'll receive communion from them. They're going to pray for you briefly, and then you'll just stay right here, kneel, and receive it with the rest of the congregation. And for some of you, one of the most important things you can do is not just to sit in the seat like you've always sat and try to do the same thing you've always done. Instead, to say, you know what, today... I'm so tired of my stinking sin. And I need to confess. I am, I, today I'm repenting of blank. And I want to receive the Lord's table this way today. Others of you, it's great and not unspiritual to receive it in your seats. But there's a few of you that you need to draw a line today. And say, God, I'm, I'm going to confess. And say to you, I am tired of my sin. So what we receive today is bread that represents the body of Jesus, which is broken for you. He absorbed God's wrath for your sin. And we receive a cup that symbolizes his blood, which became the means of the washing away of your sins. And if you know Christ, we'd love to have you celebrate this reaffirmation of what the gospel is. If, if you don't, then this partaking of this wouldn't make any sense. And so it's best for you just to simply wait, consider and evaluate what's going on in your soul and just to prayerfully meditate on what you've heard today. And so this morning, we're just going to simply celebrate the beauty of God's redemption by either receiving it normally or in one of these three ways. And so let me pray for us and ask God to help us as we receive these elements. Lord, meet with us now. Help us to respond to your word and your spirit. And give us an understanding of ourselves and our need. Make this a defining day for a few, a recommitment for most, and maybe a rebirth for a man or woman today who'd come to faith in you. We hate sin, we love you, and so use these elements now to reinforce that truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.